Hello and welcome to FD.com's Budget Day podcast on a day when Alistair Darling was meant to help restore Britain's fiscal credibility and reassure the markets. I'm Robert Shrimsley, editor of FD.com, and I'm joined in the studio by Chris Giles, our economics editor, Nick Timmins, our public policy editor, and Chris Cook, our political leader writer. So I suppose, Chris Giles, the first question I should ask is, what's the story of this budget? I think this budget is the 2010 budget, the one that's going to be forgotten in the history books. The one that we remember will be the one after the election if the Conservatives win, and if Labour wins, it'll, it'll be the autumn pre-budget report. Those will be the events where we actually learn how the government wants to reduce the enormous deficit, which is still at 167 billion pounds or nearly 12% of national income. We haven't really learnt how they are going to intend to reduce that very much further today and so that's what we'll be looking for in the next budget. So this is the budget which will frankly be forgotten. Okay, but of the parts that are worth remembering, what are the things that stood out? Well, I think the thing to be worth remembering most is actually what he didn't say rather than what he did say. What he did say was he said that the growth of the economy was pretty much as he had previously said, Uh, modest growth in 2010, followed by rapid growth in 2011, 2012. Big tax rises ahead, £20 billion a year of tax rises or so coming in the next few years, mostly going to hit the very rich, with the biggest things going to be the income tax rises coming in April 2010. But what we really didn't hear, which is where we really know things are going to happen, is on public spending. We know the public spending settlements over the next three to four years are going to be tighter than anything we've seen, certainly tighter than under Mrs Thatcher in the 1980s, and we didn't hear exactly how Labour would intend to fill that hole with spending restraint. Nick Timmins, is that how it seemed to you? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's interesting the Chancellor himself said that the choices that will be made when these public spending decisions are taken will shape society for decades to come, but he didn't give us a clue about what they're going to be. We're told told the same areas are going to get some degree of protection that we were told last December in the pre-budget report will be protected. There was no indication at all of where the cuts are going to come. Uh, And given that we're just ahead of an election, that's uh, going to present the electorate with something of a dilemma because the Conservatives aren't telling us what they're going to cut either. So come May the 6th, assuming it is May the 6th, the electorate will go in knowing that decisions will be made about the shape of society in the years to come and absolutely no clear clue from any of the main parties about what those cuts will be. Okay, Chris, plenty of enlightenment so far. Um, (laughs) What about the politics of this budget? Well, given that uh, he had absolutely no fiscal room for pulling any rabbits out of any hats, I thought actually Darling made a pretty good fist of it. There was, if if there can be such a thing, quite a witty tax avoidance measure. He managed to announce that the Belizean uh, tax exiles um, were going to be, face a, uh, a tighter regime. They've, uh, they've uh, concluded a tax treaty with Belize, uh, which will, of course, affect uh, everyone's favourite uh, non-domicile peer, Lord Ashcroft the uh, Tory deputy chairman whose tax status has recently caused trouble. But otherwise, there was just nothing. I mean, it did seem to me there were some quite interesting and clever as they could be under the circumstances dividing lines. You have the... uh the stamp duty um, holiday increase, which is announced for first-time buyers, and it's paid for by clobbering those with big houses. You have the uh, 50p tax rate is brought in for people on over 100,000, but the national insurance increase is deferred. So there's quite a lot of pain after the election for the people that Labour knows are going to vote Tory, and not much pain before the election for the people Labour needs. That's certainly true. There's also uh, another aspect of the Darling speech, um, which is probably less important because, stunningly, not many people actually watch the budget. Uh, was the narrative he set out. Uh, It was quite striking that Darling 
used the sort of preamble of his speech to make a case for government. He uh, explained, I think fairly, that actually the government's done pretty well over the last two years. You know, dealing, Since the severity of the crisis became clear, um, they have done uh, lots of effective things. Um, they've also done lots of silly things, like the, some of the sort of funny state aid Mandelson tinkering. But uh, overall, Darling managed to make a pretty good case for the difference between the Tories and the Labour. The Tories being you know, this sort of laissez-faire Thatcherites and the Labour Party being the party of the state. Chris, are there any numbers that stood out for you in this budget? Well, I think one number which stands out for me is the most important number there is. It's not in the budget, but I've just worked it out. It is £31 billion, which is just over £1,000 per household per year uh, in the UK. And that is the amount of spending reductions that is planned that we weren't told about. And that number is an incredibly important number. So whatever the political cleverness of having a very good joke against Lord Ashcroft. Really, the really important political and economic uh, future of this country is going to depend on what the next government chooses to do on public spending. And that's what we haven't heard. One thing I was surprised by, Chris, was that he didn't move on capital gains tax, given the widening disparity between it and income tax. Did that surprise you? It was pretty well flagged up in advance that he wouldn't. But in the end, I think at some point a future chancellor will. This is really going to be a very difficult piece of um, thing for government because avoidance is going to be very important in the for very rich people being able to move income into capital gains. Now you can do this quite easily. If you own a business let's say, all you do is you rack up cash, you don't pay yourself a dividend for a few years and then sell the business for more money. You pay 18% capital gains rather than a 50% income tax rate. This is going to cause a lot of problems for a future Chancellor. Why didn't Alistair Darling do anything? Well, he introduced the 18% capital gains tax rate in the pre-budget report of two. They've also hit trouble trying to tackle this loophole before, haven't they? They have. The, the only Chancellor who really tackled it very effectively was Nigel Lawson when he made the capital gains tax rate the same as the marginal rate of income tax. Now, Gordon Brown got rid of that in 1997 and moved a, lo- a long way away from that. And there's been trouble in this area ever since. And until you go back to a stage where you say capital gains tax isn't a tax about raising money. What it is, is it's trying to stop people by diverting capital gains, diverting income into capital gains. You will always have this problem. Nick, one of the things that did stand out in, in the budget was the announcement of the relocation of lots and lots of civil servants who are going to be um, forced out of London. Is that going to do much good for filling the... Is that the big waste measure? We uh, hardly, no. I mean, it might make a marginal difference here and there. I mean, the one thing he did do was give us some more detail of the £20 billion of efficiency savings that, that he announced in the pre-budget report. And there are some small cuts to programmes that you can see uh, that he spelt out. Where we're going to get rid of 140 quangos out of the 700 you know, the arm, sorted arms-length bodies, which involve things like merging the National Lottery Commission and the Gambling Commission. Uh, though it's interesting that the National Audit Office produced a report only the other day saying many of these machinery of government changes don't actually save money. Uh, so there's some detail about how those efficiency savings will be made. But you know, if you, you, you were asking what's the big number that sticks out, well, I'd kind of double Chris's £31 billion, actually, because that only halves the deficit. If you go all the way out to getting the budget into balance, we're talking more like 60 70 billion. Can you put that into context, what that would mean for Whitehall spending? If you look at the Institute of Fiscal Studies Analysis after the pre-budget report, if you look at the areas the government is saying it will protect, we're talking about cuts for other departments in the region of 18 to 24%. Now, I just do not believe that can be done without damaging services on them. It's just a massive scale of reduction. And so... I suspect going forward, the promises that are being made about protecting the NHS and protecting schools uh, are going to look a bit flaky. 
And and if you're really if you're not going to make cuts of those size of that size in those departments, well, then we have to do something about benefit expenditure. You know, the annually managed money, that, and some of, some of it's going to have to come out of that. But we're not being told what. Okay, Chris Cook. Lots of nice words being written about Alistair Darling before this budget. How he was standing up to Gordon Brown. He was going to go down in posterity as the right kind of chancellor. Um, we've given him a fairly good trashing over the last few minutes. How did David Cameron come out of this? Uh, I'm not sure he did terribly well today. The problem they have is this: the Tories are still caught between this age of austerity narrative. The um, at their conference, they were talking about the small state and the big society, um, and I think people got voters got a bit frightened of this. Um, they actually quite like the state, uh, or at least they're ambivalent about it. Um, and he still doesn't really have a response to the sort of enabling state labour narrative. Uh, so his he was a bit shrill, I felt, today. I mean, particularly at the start where, I mean, I I like to think of myself as a sort of mi- sort of middling centrist type of person. We I think th- of you as very middling. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's a reputation I've long had. Um, Cameron started off with a list of policies that were announced in the budget that had been stolen from the Tories. And it's sort of, it's so cheap and everything else. And you just feel that's not the way to go. He's got to start actually making a case for voting Tory rather than making a case for why the Labour Party isn't very good. OK, well, let's, um, let's end with some predictions. You've all said how this wasn't the budget that mattered. It's the next one that matters. So, Chris, what do you think we can expect then in the next horror budget? Well, let's, let's take a, a future Labour government. If, we, if Labour do win the election, I would say that the Labour pre-budget report comes spending review in the autumn if we get one would have swinging cuts to capital spending. We heard a lot about filling in roads and potholes and things where they're going to spend money, but we haven't heard about where projects are going to be delayed, and I think that would be the big thing we all hear, as well as, as Nick was talking about, extremely large cuts in budgets such as the Home Office but not police, uh, transport, uh, local authorities, housing, all these sorts of areas are going to be sliced really severely, and that is what people will remember the next Parliament for. Nick, what about if it's George Osborne then? Well, if it's George Osborne, and you listen to what they're saying at the moment, they will cut faster. So it will be what Chris has just described, only more so. Um, And it will... I mean, one thing is certain is that whoever wins the next election, the next budgets, pre-budget and spending round reports, will be remembered for a very long time. And Chris, what we haven't mentioned tax rises. We've talked about spending cuts. Can we expect them too? Uh, I think we're going to have tax rises whoever's in power. I mean, the the holes are simply too big uh, and too difficult. There's one point on spending cuts from the Tories is that the um, it's very difficult to uh, to work out anything from the vague, puffy rhetoric. But it's striking that the Tories moved from saying they would target the current structural deficit rather than the structural deficit, which might suggest they're thinking about having uh, more capital spending than the government. Um, but other than that, we have no clue. Excellent. Well, it sounds like the next budget podcast is one to look forward to even more. Thanks very much indeed. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.